0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Whistler's mother. Literally, Whistler's mother. With Georgia Totsiari, Daniel Sutherland is the co-author of Whistler's Mother, Portrait of an Extraordinary Life. The book, Biography of Anna Whistler, explains both the austere woman represented in James Abbott McNeil Whistler's famed 1871 painting, Arrangement in Gray and Black No. 1, better known as Whistler's Mother, and Anna Whistler's involvement in her son's career. Anna Whistler lived a remarkable life that started in the slaveholding South, continued in the rapidly industrializing Northeast via her marriage to one of the most prominent railroad engineers of the time, and which took her and her family to St. Petersburg, Russia, Europe, and London, where she became her son's unofficial art world manager and agent. The book Whistler's Mother was just published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $13. Yes, really, $13 in cloth. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Sutherland was previously a guest on The Man podcast in 2014 when he and I discussed Whistler, A Life for Art's Sake, his terrific biography of the artist. Yale University Press has just released it in paperback. Amazon has it for $15. On the second segment, Odabag Nakenga discusses her work on the occasion of a survey of her work at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. But first, Daniel Sutherland, after the break. (laughs)
1: The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at kimballart.org.
0: An upcoming talk at the Getty dives into a touchy, timely subject. Does an artist's bad behavior diminish the quality of his or her artwork? Cultural historian and film critic Neil Gabler, USC popular culture scholar Todd Boyd, and University of Notre Dame art historian Ingrid Rowland discuss how and whether we can value the art of miscreants and criminals. Amanda Fortini, contributing writer at The New Yorker, moderates. Learn more about this free May 16th event at Getty.edu/360. Studio visit: Selected gifts from Agnes Gund is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art. Collector and longtime MoMA trustee Agnes Gund's studio visits, in which she stops by artists' studios to see and discuss their work, have been an integral part of building a collection that involves a vast range of artists, from well-known figures to emerging talents. This new exhibition celebrates her unparalleled dedication to the arts. Get more info at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Daniel Sutherland, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you very much, Tyler. I'm glad to be with you.
0: I cannot think of another example of a biography of a major artist's mother. So what about a biography of Anna Whistler interested you?
2: It started as a joke, actually. (laughs) I had finished the biography of her, her son, Uh, It was was going going to press, and so I was talking with my editor, and she asked, what's next? And and kind of jokingly, I said, well, I I guess I'll I'll write a biography of his mother. And she said, that's a great idea. (laughs) And so I I don't want to say I was stuck with it. I I really enjoyed doing it, but it it wasn't exactly what I had, had intended to do. But, but she's just a fascinating woman, too. I mean, I, I came to know her fairly well, obviously, in, in writing Jimmy's biography. And so I had, I had a head start in sort of understanding what direction her biography would take. And I was also surprised that there had been only one other genuine biography of her. And that was written back in the 1930s with you know, very, very little in the way of documentation or, or what I would consider hard research. And because she is so well known, I mean, her face is one of the best-known faces in, in the Western world, I suppose. I just thought she was she was worthy of a biography. Were you interested
0: in writing about Anna Whistler? Her name is Anna, because of her life and it being a certain kind of nineteenth-century life, or because of her influence on her son?
2: Well, well, both, and and I hope that both of those dimensions of her life life come through. She was. In many ways a in quotes a, a modern woman stuck in several traditional roles uh, in the nineteenth century I mean her highest priorities were her her children and her her husband and, until her husband passed away and and in that sense you know, the, the the idea of her becoming a a symbol of motherhood is 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 almost a natural part uh, of her 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 life her, primary role in life as she saw. On the other hand, she had an adventurous life, maybe the best word, outside of those traditional roles or, or perhaps bringing and linking those those roles as, as mother and, and wife together. For example, she was widely traveled across the Atlantic Ocean 11, 11 different times. Most often on her own, she sailed back and forth between Europe and Russia on the Baltic Ocean uh, probably a half a dozen times. Uh, so she's not the sort of woman who uh, who's simply going to sit at home and, and, and lead a passive life. One of my favorite quotations by her, something she wrote in a letter, is when she said she would rather wear out than rust out. And so I think that, that combination of understanding and, and really caring about uh, how well she performed in those traditional roles uh, is complemented by that that sort of unseen part of her life. Now, I, I think I nearly skipped the, the other part of your question, and that's what the portion that relates to her promotion of, of her son's career, Jimmy's career, that would fit into that that, that second category of, of living outside of her, her traditional roles. Because she was a big promoter of his work, uh, she would advise him, uh, for example, when he started to um, get some recognition for his, his etchings, Uh, She encouraged him to write, uh, compose a catalog of the etchings, and and not just a catalog, but to to number each one sequentially, which would make it easier for buyers to order uh, the etchings from him without having to to describe the etching that they uh, they were wanting to buy. She patched over some of his hard relations with patrons and dealers, most notably Frederick Leyland. So in a number of ways, she was there to, um, as she was when he was was small, you might say, to to catch him when he fell uh, and to make sure that he, or at least try to make sure that he was uh, on the right path to success.
0: Among the more interesting ways she advised him in his career, to me anyway, was that she is that you write about how she advised him to send a set of etchings to Charles Sumner the progressive Massachusetts senator in the hopes that that Sumner who was an abolitionist would find ways to to help her son of course anna whistler herself was was a southerner and you mentioned that you mentioned those 11 atlantic crossings she made she lived probably about as broadly and widely geographically as almost any american of her era could you give us the 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 kind of quick rundown of of where she's born, how she gets to New England, and then how she she gets to Russia and England?
2: <laughs> it it is an odyssey, isn't it?
0: It is a lot of travel. <laughs> uh,
2: you no, know, she was born in uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, the, uh, the daughter of a physician and a small slaveholder. There were uh, certainly household servants, slaves, and in the uh, McNeil was his name, the McNeil household. But when she was about 9 or 10, for uncertain reasons, it's not exactly clear why, uh, the family moved to, to Brooklyn. I see not exactly clear. There, there are some, uh, some, uh, some connections. For example, her mother's sister and her grandmother uh, had, had, had moved north already, were living in New York City. Uh, they were there because of her, her uncle's uh, commercial interests. Trying to establish commercial links between the Carolinas and and uh, New York, New York bankers, New York shippers, and so on. Uh, but for whatever reason, they they wound up in, in Brooklyn, which is where she really uh, sort of spent her formative years, from the age of about ten into her her, her middle teens. When her father died, the family. Whistler's father, uh, Whistler's father died uh, in the midst of his construction of the railroad, and uh, then the family returned to the uh, to the United States. Uh, lived mostly in um, in Connecticut and Scarsdale, New York. And, in fact, of all the places that that Anna lived, uh, including the big cities like uh, you know Philadelphia, London, uh, St. Petersburg, New York, Brooklyn, I think her, her her favorite place in the world was Scarsdale, New York. She had had friends there that she had known when she was growing up in Brooklyn. Uh, They built a little cottage for her, which is is still there, a church. Uh, She was a low church Episcopalian within about 200 yards of her her front door. And I think she always thought of that as as home. That's where she would always return, uh, wherever her, her, her travels took her. Uh, during the rest of her life. I think she really liked Scarsdale. Stonington, Connecticut, another small town she enjoyed, uh, primarily because her, her sister, uh, Kate, lived there, uh, and, and Kate's family. Uh, so Stonington and Scarsdale, I think, rather than the large cities or what, uh,
1: where, where she most enjoyed
2: being. And Of course, she wound up in, in London during the midst of the American Civil War. She was a Southerner, but because she had married a U.S. Army officer, uh, was sort of been in the Army before he uh, he became a a a, a civilian a civil engineer
0: this was a time when it was common for army engineers to work for private
2: companies so yeah, yeah absolutely the West Point where George Washington was to receive this, his education was the I won't say the only engineering school in the United States at that time, but certainly the best. And and army officers were so poorly paid in the army that they usually left as soon as possible uh, to take uh, lucrative contracts with um, uh, constructing not just railroads, but but roads, harbor facilities, uh, those sorts of things. And so because of her devotion to her, her husband, and because she had not really grown up in a, in a slave society, in a slave community. There were slaves in Brooklyn when she moved there, but you, you can't consider within New York in the 1820s uh, to be a slave society. So she really was, was not attached to, to slavery as such um, and and was more concerned with the, the preservation of the, of, of the Union when the war started. Now that changed uh, to a certain extent when her, her younger son, William Whistler, Became a surgeon in the Confederate Army. That had to do with the fact that he had married a, a Southern girl. Shortly after the war began, uh, he and his wife went to Richmond to visit her relatives, and he became sort of caught up in the, uh, the excitement of the war, probably some pressure from his wife to <laughs> uh, to stay and, and support the Confederacy. And so he remained in, in Richmond and, and uh, was a surgeon in Richmond, in the various hospitals in Richmond, and in the field in the Army of Northern Virginia with with Robert E. Lee. Uh, But early in the war, about a a year into the war, early 1862, uh, Willie's wife became quite ill. Willie asked Anna to come to Richmond, to to come from from Scarsdale to to nurse his wife. Uh, She did so, but uh, it was too late to save her and, and Willie's wife. Wife died in, in Richmond during the war. Anna then returned north, but by this time she was so, not confused is the right word, but, but certainly uh, unhappy with with the the way her, her country was going, uh, her sense of divided loyalties between uh, her son who was still in Richmond and 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 most of her friends who were who were Northerners. That I, I, she just wanted to escape it all, and and so she went to to London. Uh, to join Jimmy and her uh, her stepdaughter Deborah, uh, and and her many grandchildren, all of her grandchildren uh, came from uh, from uh, uh, Deborah's marriage to a uh, a London physician. And once there, in December of 1863, uh, she spent the rest of her life then in in London until the very end, because she grew quite ill in the mid 1870s. Uh, her children better for, for to live on the, uh, on the southern coast of England at, at Hastings and, and away from the uh, the fog and the difficulty she always had breathing in, in London. And so she actually then spent the remaining five or six years of her life in Hastings uh, where she died and, and where she was then buried.
0: In addition to emphasizing Anna and the Whistler family's travels all over, you and your co-author really emphasize something that Probably a lot of people intuit from looking at the famous painting, Whistler's Mother. And that's Anna's intense Christian piety and the importance of a string of churches in her life. How did, how did that piety and devotion to church impact her life? And does it impact her, her son's life?
2: Insofar as her life, it, it's really defined who she was as a person. And, and this goes simply from the way she was, she was reared. Her mother was devout. And you get a sense that you know there were, there was rarely a Sunday where <laughs> little Anna did not miss a, a, a church service, uh, and that she was simply inundated with hymnals and, and sermons and uh, tracts trying to keep her on the on the straight and narrow now, now this was not un unusual in the nineteenth century one of the ways in which religion was in, or one of yeah, one of the reasons that religion was important in the lives of, of most nineteenth century women was the 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 gritty and immoral world outside the home needed that that anchor when they returned home, uh, sullied by their their lives as uh, bankers or merchants or whatever their their roles might be. And so the religious training of of middle class, at least 19th century women, uh, was part of the course for everyone. Now, some women, such as Anna, took that perhaps more to heart than others, uh, but that certainly was the you know in the origins of her her strong religious beliefs, now insofar as how that affected her her children, it varied <laughs> her younger son or at least her younger surviving son uh, she had eight eight children in all five that that she birthed and she had three stepchildren, only Jimmy and Willie of those five children uh, survived childhood the other other three died, and so the two surviving Boys, uh, Willie was most like his mother. And, and, and she, you know, attests to this over and over again in her, her diaries and, in her letters that, uh Willie is the, the, the most gentle of her boys. Uh, and she really had hopes of him perhaps becoming a, um, uh, a minister, a pastor, uh, rather than the, the phys- physician he did become. Jimmy, on the other hand, was a, a, a lost cause. Uh, he was, <laughs> He was always rambunctious. He was always challenging her authority. Uh, now, now he loved her dearly. I, I don't want to underestimate that. Uh, he always he, he he almost never refers to her simply as mother, but it's always dear mother. Uh, so he really respected her, and yet he simply I I, I don't know if he was uh, given uh, too much religious training as as a child, and so rebelled against that, or as he grew up, he simply became a, uh, a non-believer, you know, given the uh, bohemian artistic world in which he, he lived in, where you have to assume that, that piety was not as highly esteemed as it was in, in his, his younger years. Now, now, that said, one of the things that benefited from his, his religious upbringing uh, was that he was an absolute master of, of the Bible and uh, of biblical verses. He once kidded his mother, saying that when she was difficult circumstances or, or wanted to convey some some moral lesson, she would rely on inspirational biblical verses to make her point, whereas he always liked to use the, the vindictive of the Bible to attack his, his opponents and, and his enemies, uh, using, using biblical scripture in his own peculiar way.
0: You mentioned earlier that the Whistlers lived for a number of years in, in St. Petersburg in Russia. After Anna's husband dies, the family moves to Baltimore, and I think there's a letter that she intercepts or receives that's addressed to, to her son, Jemmy, that gives us a certain insight into her involvement in his affairs, if you will.
2: <laughs> yes, beyond beyond artistic affairs. Now, now you mentioned Baltimore. They, they, they didn't move immediately to Baltimore. They moved to, to, to Pomfret. Connecticut. They were in Baltimore after uh, Jimmy was dismissed from from West Point, from the military academy,
0: for having about the most demerits anybody had ever seen to that point.
2: <laughs> yes, for shattering all known all known records. But uh, the, the family was connected to a manufacturing family in in Baltimore, and so they they, they kind of all went there to try to to regroup after and, and figure out what what to do next with with Jimmy and the rest of the family. But while he was there, he received a letter from a so-called West Point belle, uh, a young woman, woman with whom he had become emotionally involved as as a cadet. And apparently, there were several of them. I, I think I mentioned in in well, I do mention in in his biography that uh, at the age of 18, as a as a young cadet, he contracted gonorrhea uh, while at West Point. Now this. Young Bill probably was not the cause of his of his gonorrhea, but Anna uh, claims that she opened the uh, uh, the letter uh, by mistake. I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, she this is clearly the, the handwriting of a, a young woman who's clearly addressed to her son, but she's very protective of, of him, and, and particularly she uh, was concerned about his his fragile state, uh, having been in. in uh, not only embarrassed himself, but embarrassed the entire family. Uh, remember, his father was one of the most famous graduates of the of the military academy, uh, as was an uncle, <laughs> William Whistler. Uh, but she received this received this letter, and she never is specific about the, the contents of it. But it, it, it clearly was an attempt by this young young woman to to reconnect uh, with Jimmy. And so she answers the letter for her son. Uh, she later tells him that that she did this. She's doesn't try to conceal it from him, uh, but she writes a letter quite clearly discouraging this young woman from um, pursuing this connection with her son. Uh, she says something to the effect that um, uh, Jimmy already has uh, attracted the attention of other uh, bright eyes in uh, in Baltimore, so it's it's useless for you to pursue him. Just 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 leave him alone and. Uh, in so many words, and so she was accustomed to this this kind of intervention, which some people would, would think is off 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 putting. And uh, Jimmy laughed it off. He, he sort of uh, understood that this was the way she she operated. But it's uh, she's very possessive of her of her children. Her from, from that moment on, I mean, this is this was true earlier on as well. Uh, but her highest priority, and she says this over and over and over again. Was to find a home for herself and for her boys. It's always, always her boys that she's talking about, uh, by which she meant uh, Jimmy and and, and Willie. Uh, she hoped that Scarsdale uh, could be a home. Uh, she hoped that Stonington perhaps would be a home. Uh, when she finally moves to London, uh, she hopes that that can be a home. Just found it impossible to be, uh, to be separated from them. She'd always, and, and this is again part of that that growing up. Uh, be it the uh, the religious element or the, the simply the domestic element of it, but she always thought that her role in how in life was to pro- provide a home, uh, provide a home uh, earlier for her husband, but now certainly for her, uh, for her children, and to make sure that they were uh, safe and secure in in life.
0: In 1871, she's in London and says, so Jemmy. And uh, we we come to what is one of the great years of his career, and certainly two of the great greatest paintings of his career. The the first one to mention to bring up was originally known as Harmony in Blue Green Moonlight. It was later retitled Nocturne Blue and Silver Chelsea. Uh, it's a painting now at the Tate. Anna had a role in that painting. Uh, how how so? <laughs>
2: It it came in in the midst of the painting of her portrait. Whistler, you you may recall, was notorious for imposing on his sitters and and requiring them to have numerous sittings and numerous long sittings, hours and hours of a time. And he he simply to seemed to be unfazed or unaware or unconcerned with with how tired a person. <laughs> Uh, can be become by sitting or standing certainly in in the same position for so long. But but he was more aware of this, obviously with his with his mother, and so one day he he could see that she was she was tired of, of holding holding that pose, and he said, "Okay, well let, let's have a day out." Uh, so they went down to the river. They got on a, a a tourist launch that that took them into the into the city, walked around St James's Park, and just just made made a day of it. But when they returned, it was at, at twilight. And and something about the way in which the uh, the sun was setting on, on on the river. Remember, Jimmy's house is in in uh, Cheney Walk, right right on right on the Thames. Uh, and and something about the scene simply caught his eye, and so he rushed around and he got to uh, got to uh, set up his easel and his canvas and uh, began to sketch out uh, uh, the scene. And and Anna asked if she could if she could help. I mean, what 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 could she do to? And she could see how excited he was by this, and so he started to to direct her to get uh, certain uh, tubes of of, of of paint and bring them to him, and rags and, and brushes, whatever whatever it was he needed, so that he could he could sit there and not leave the scene, and uh, she would go back and forth between there and the and his uh, his supplies and and bring them to him. And so ever after, she would she would refer to that that particular painting as, as their painting. And so she had, was as much responsible for it as as he was, uh, and, and was very proud when uh, uh, when it was exhibited and and reviews came out. She would copy the uh, at least the favorable comments about the about the painting and, and send them to all her all her and Jimmy's relatives to to brag on, brag about him.
0: So as you mentioned, while Whistler was working on on that nocturne, he was working on a portrait of his mother. Was it a difficult painting, was, was the portrait of his mother a difficult painting for, for Jimmy to, to figure out, to get right, to get onto canvas in a way that he liked?
2: Apparently every painting was made, <laughs> was a, a major, a major project for him. He, he was One of the things that defined his life was his per- perfection. Uh, he, he was a perfectionist, and not just in, in his paintings, but in his dealings with people, He's famous for all of the, uh, the the many quarrels in which he entered into with his uh, his patrons and, and, and sometimes very close friends, but uh, all of those usually centered on some point of honor that he thought had been uh, infringed upon, so for perfection in, in that way as well. But certainly in the case of his, his mother, he was very frustrated from time to time, and uh, we know that he wiped out entire sections and would start over. In in very recent years, with all of the, the marvelous technology we have now to examine paintings with uh, infrared light and, and so on, we can we can see beneath the, the, the finished surface portions that he had uh, had begun and 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 painted over, and, uh, or shifted the position of the uh, of the stool, for example, on which her her feet are sitting. That uh, that is several inches closer to her it than it was originally. Uh, so yes, and, and and whether or not he wanted this particular painting to be as, as perfect as, as possible, I think is is a possibility too. Uh, we know he took great great pride in this in this painting. It was something he uh, he said at the beginning he had always wanted to do. He had always wanted to immortalize his mother in this way. And so yes, I think he did take.
0: Title for the painting was Arrangement in Gray and Black, number one, uh, Portrait of the Artist's Mother. At 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 around this time, Whistler is particularly interested in making paintings that are very tonally specific, if you will, uh, black on black. He, of course, made a famous painting that was white on white. Why was that of interest to him? And do we know, do you know, do you have an idea of why he? Chose kind of a black on black or a grisaille painting for the portrait of his mother.
2: In a lot of ways, it's black on gray. I mean, it is an arrangement of gray and black. That partly has to do with
1: his studio. The, the studio was painted
2: gray. Uh, has partly to do with his his mother always wearing black. <laughs> uh, I mean, in this instance, it's 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 kind of common sense. Of And, and that was Courbet, uh, and, and that whole school of, 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 of realism and the use of, of uh, bright colors, multiple colors. As he became more and more uh, enthusiastic about about etching, uh, and then at, at about that same time about lithography, Whistler tended to see the world more in terms of drawing than in terms of painting. In some ways,
0: these years he's also working on kind of a black-on-black portrait of Leland too, i i a painting
2: to Spain to to see Velazquez's paintings at first hand. Got about halfway there and then for a number of reasons decided to to go back. Uh, But he was certainly aware of
0: As an influence. At about about two years after Whistler paints his mother, he makes another arrangement in Grand Black, Arrangement in Grand Black number two. It's a painting of Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher. And it's also a a profile view. What do you think was informing him as he chose to portray sitters in in profile like this?
2: Well, that was nothing new. If you look at his, at his, his very earliest etchings, that he did on a on a trip through through Germany in the 1850s when he was still a a student in Paris. Many of the the, the sitters in in those etchings are in profile, particularly the the women. Uh, also in archways, uh, he's very fond of using archways uh, in in his etchings, especially uh, showing a, uh, a strong Dutch influence on his his etchings and his um, on his paintings. If you look at the piano, which I to which I already referred to, which is a, uh, a domestic scene, a genre scene. Uh, his sister uh, Deborah uh, sitting at the family piano. Uh, she's sitting in, in profile.
0: 1859 painting. We'll have it on manpodcast.com.
2: Yeah, exhibited at, at the his first painting at the Royal Academy in, in 1860, the following year. Now, why he chose to do this, particularly with his mother, is, is an interesting question as, as well, and a number of. Writers have proposed all sorts of psychological <laughs> reasons for this. He was afraid to look his mother in the face, for example, something along those lines. I think that's all kind of nonsense, but this is something he had done before. Oh, and another thing, too, suddenly occurs to me. The other, the only other, or at least to that time, the only other known painting or print of his mother, which was done when they were in Russia, uh, she's sitting in profile. And so I think he was maybe influenced by that. Uh, and wanted to have his own version of that that uh, watercolor, I believe it was, that had been done thirty, thirty-five 35 years earlier.
0: I think in the book you also note that you think that he's possibly looking at Rembrandt's etchings of of his mother.
2: Yes, which are not, they're more three-quarter than, than yeah. strictly, strictly profile. But whether or not he wanted to paint his mother as his mother simply because Rembrandt had, had done that, I don't know. I don't know about that. Clearly, the Winbrand is always somewhere looking in the background of his, of his thinking. Now, why he would put Carlyle in that <laughs> in that same position, and, and
0: and and why the duo would be his mother and Carlyle, who's one of the most famous men in the English-speaking world at the time.
2: <laughs> whether he's, he wants to say something about his mother in and, and doing that, or whether uh, this was Carlyle's suggestion because he, he he agreed to to have this portrait made after he had seen Anna's portrait. So whose Id- we, we, we simply don't know if, if uh, Whistler suggested this or if Carlisle thought this was a good idea. I think it's interesting, the relationship that seems to have grown between uh, Whistler and Carlisle at this time. Uh, Carlyle, of course, had, had lived very nearby, just maybe a 10-minute walk away from, from, from Whistler's home, and undoubtedly knew his reputation as sort of this, uh, this reckless spendthrift and braggart and, a boisterous self promoter and, and so on and so forth, which is not the sort of person that Car- Carlyle would like. He did not suffer fools lightly. And he's known to have referred on occasion to Whistler as one of the most ridiculous men in uh, he'd ever met. But he also but he also now afterwards, after having sit for this portrait, also admitted that Whistler was and to use Carlyle's word uh, also one of the most remarkable people he had ever met. And so you get a sense that, that during these sittings, and then uh, and then they would oftentimes, uh, Whistler would oftentimes walk uh, Carlisle home. They would stroll along the, along the embankment, along the river, and, and have conversations. He, he would just love to know what, the, what they talked about. Uh, but, but quite clearly, Carlisle came to understand that Whistler, Whistler was not uh, a fool himself, that Whistler... Uh, thought deeply. and uh, was conversed on, on, on a whole range of of, of issues. Whistler was uh, uh, tremendously well read, and so you get a sense of there's there's grudging admiration, uh, even that Carlyle seems to develop with Whistler. The other thing too, thinking of Carlyle, of course met met Anna in the in the house when he was going for his his sittings in Whistler's studio, and I think that again suggesting how how insightful Carlyle could be. Uh, I think his his description of of Anna uh, is is one of the best ones I've, uh, I've I've come across insofar as a succinct distillation of of her character. When he referred to her as being shy, authoritative, So you, and and you can see that almost in in the painting. Uh, certainly you have a, a sense not just of, of of piety as such, which which is something that you have to kind of read into a painting. I think if you don't know the person uh but certainly there's 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 a quietude there which we might be able to associate with shyness. And on the other hand you get from what we know of, of her life outside of that frame uh and the way in which she directed and and in many ways controlled the lives of the people around her. Uh there is this this quiet authoritative uh streak in her. Uh she didn't shout, she didn't yell, she didn't <laughs> stomp her foot and, and, and demand that things be done. Uh, but she did speak and she did act with an authority that people found it impossible to to ignore or, or to, to 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 defy.
0: You know, for all the similarities between Whistler's portrait of his mother and his portrait of Carlisle, from the pose to where they are positioned in the canvas, to how they hold their hands, to where they're looking, their gaze, not to use an overly academic term, but, but their gaze is startlingly different. I mean, she... She 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 is she is staring down iron, whereas Carlyle, who is looking in the same direction, of course, appears more to be kind of thinking inwardly. I mean maybe that's because of what you know, maybe I'm reading that in because of what we know about Carlisle, of course. But I think there is a real difference in how they're looking in the direction they're looking.
2: Absolutely. I've always described uh Carlisle's look as as being bored. <laughs> He did not want to be there for that long. He thought you know, you zipped in, you had your painting done. In fact, for many of the sittings, he he wasn't there at all. Uh, Whistler had someone dressed in in Carlyle's clothes, uh, and, and maybe Carlisle recognized that point, and he uh, with, with all the great care that Whistler was taking on on the clothes rather than on his his face, uh, and, and complained that it was more a portrait of his clothes than of his of his person. Now, Anne is gaze, if you will, is also one of the things that has sort of made the painting iconic, as with most icons, and subject to parody, (laughs) because you see all of the ways in which Anna's portrait over the years has been been misused uh, in in cartoons and advertisements on slapped on ties and beer mugs and all sorts of things. Whiskey bottles, I saw one on a whiskey bottle, and and a lot of the cartoons uh, have these little... um, bubbles, you know, above her, showing what the person is thinking or speaking, and a lot of that has to do with what she's looking at. That's, that's one of the great questions, you know, what is she looking at? What is she thinking when she's sitting there for all those hours and, and all those many days and weeks that it, that it took to, to complete the, the painting? Some, some early, more romantic uh, critics uh, commenting on the painting uh, even during her lifetime suggested that she was looking back fondly on her on her life as her son sat there painting her uh, and all the all the the many people and all the many adventures that she had known uh, during her lifetime uh, well, possibly who knows what, what a person is thinking but uh, but but you're quite right it's it's a very different uh, sort of look. Some people uh, have s- suggested to me that there's there's a sternness to it as well they ask well why isn't she smiling? Well, first of all, it's almost impossible to smile in in profile.
0: Without looking maniacal, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work. But also one of the things I I didn't realize, I I did find, learn some new things that I didn't know in surveying her life for for Jimmy's biography. Uh, But she had terrible problems with her teeth during her lifetime. Uh, At least eight of her natural teeth were, were, were poles were removed. And she had what was, in those days, known as a as a partial a partial plate. Uh, and if you look at the photographs of her, she's never really you know, smiling with, with a, a big grin. And I think she was simply embarrassed all of her life uh, to to expose her her, her mouth and her, her lack of teeth, if you will. And so she was accustomed to that sort of uh, clenching of her of her mouth, unless she wanted, for some particular reason, to express. Pleasure that
0: people are, or events. Whistler finished Whistler's Mother in, uh, in 1871. It was exhibited publicly in 72 and 74. Whistler permits an engraving to be made of it in 1879, which further disseminated the image. You have kind of a whole chapter on, on how, how the painting would live between the late 19th century and now. What is most important in kind of the life of the, the image and Whistler's presentation of Anna?
2: Well, we we wrote that chapter because the painting was was not as, as revered or revered I should say in uh, in Anna's lifetime as as, as it would become I did, not even in in Whistler's lifetime. Now you see frequent mentions of it in in uh, obituaries of, of Whistler. Uh, but I think what's what I found interesting is how it's almost always coupled with the Carlisle portrait.
0: Yeah, which is in Glasgow, by the way.
2: Yes, one of the the first. Uh, painting that Whistler sold to a, a a public institution, and so it it, it took some getting used to. <laughs> I think uh, people had to come to sort of uh, understand its uh, uh, its its greatness as a as a masterpiece in so far as the the handling of the uh, of, of, of the paint and the arrangement. The, all of those are, are artistic elements that define a great painting. But then beyond that, as, as an icon, which I think is something different. I mean, there are lots of masterpieces that we don't consider to be icons. Um, but we were interested in, in trying to understand how it gained that, that latter status, uh, that that, that, that I- iconic status. And a lot of it had to do with the um, the Great Depression in the United States. It had not been shown in the United States, outside of one showing, and, until the 1930s. Uh, when it was requested for a, a survey of uh, American art that was going to be shown at the uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York, one, one of the first retrospectives uh, of American art to be held there, and they requested specifically that Anna's portrait be part of that. Now, now by this time, it was it was owned by the French slated to go into the into the Louvre, eventually went to the Museum d'Orsay, and and I think it was that that showing of the of Anna's portrait in America, which was shown not only in New York but uh, it it toured the country. Once the great crowds began to go to see it in in New York, uh, art galleries from uh, from New York to to California were uh, requested that it be loaned out to them as long as long as as, as in the country. Uh, And indeed, the French had to extend the the contract uh, for a year uh, to allow it to be shown in all the places that that, uh, it wanted to be shown. And it was during that triumphant progression, I suppose you could call it, uh, that Anna was even, her image was even placed on on a U.S. postage stamp. Uh, So I think it was from that moment on that it sort of caught the imagination, certainly uh, of the United States, uh, and began to gain that. Uh, that status as an icon and, and, or particularly uh, as, a, as a symbol of, uh, of motherhood, which was, in fact, embraced by other countries as well.
0: Daniel Sutherland, thanks so much.
2: Well, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about uh, Anna and her son.
0: The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents One Hand Clapping, an exhibition exploring our changing relationship with the future. On view through October 21st, One Hand Clapping features commissioned work in a range of traditional and new mediums by five artists, Sao Fei, Duan John Yu, Lin Yilin, Wang Ping, and Samson Young. From paintings to mixed media installations to a virtual reality experience featuring the likeness of basketball star Jeremy Lin, these works challenge visions of a global, homogenous, and technocratic future. One Hand Clapping is the final exhibition of the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Chinese Art Initiative, which offers a platform for artistic experimentation that responds to urgent issues of our time. Learn more at guggenheim.org slash One Hand The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Eve Loris Cohen Meeting Ground at its downtown location from April 19th through September 2nd. For Loris Cohen's first solo museum presentation on the West Coast, the artist takes as his starting point MCASD La Jolla's current expansion, a construction endeavor involving the conversion of Sherwood Auditorium into a multi-purpose gallery. On the occasion of Sherwood's disappearance, the artist is engaged in an excavation of the history of the auditorium, and, in turn, of the museum itself. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Next up, Odabang Nkenga discusses her work on the occasion of Odabang Nkenga to dig a hole that collapses again at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. The exhibition, a survey of her work which continues through September 2nd, was curated by Omar Khalif. Nkenga, who was born in Nigeria and who lives and works in Antwerp, Belgium, makes paintings, drawings, tapestry, installations, and gives performances that explore the history and impact of colonialism, especially in Africa. Much of her work addresses the way such histories have impacted the land, and the viewers' likely connections with that past. Nkanga has performed at, or her work has been exhibited at, the Tate Modern, the Stedelijk Museum Arnhem, the Moderna Musite, the Center Pompidou, and Documenta 14 in Castle, Germany. The MCA Chicago Exhibition Catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $25. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Odabang Nkanga, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hello, oh, thank you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and to have this discussion with you.
0: At the core of, of your work, and and for really about 20 years, has been a certain insistence that individuals have a relationship, should have a relationship with the land, be it the land that they're from or the land that produced things that are around them, food, minerals, what have you. How did you come to decide that was going to be the fundamental principle of, of your work, because certainly once you identified it, you you spent a lot of years within it.
1: I think it's not a question of decision. I think it's just a question of being in it and moving from a place, you know, moving from Nigeria, going to living in Paris and then living in Amsterdam and then now living in Antwerp and also traveling to different parts of the world, your body your emotions your psychological states are totally intertwined with thinking about or oh, thinking about places or being in certain places the temperatures the things that you eat and how your body reacts to that so there is this very connected or way of being in places and the kinds of shifts that you have to do when you go to certain places that you're not accustomed to and how to find connectivities with those places. And I think that is the way that I've been thinking through or making my work is in relation to places, spaces, emotions, that relation to your spiritual being, to your emotional part. And that has totally affected the way I work.
0: Even so, kind of, The way land has been used in Africa, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, has been central to the work for a long time. Was it that as you were in Europe, you became more aware of how Europe benefited, if you will, from its exploitation of sub-Saharan Africa, and that's how it found its way into the work?
1: I would say that it's a combination of being in Europe or being in West Africa or different parts of Africa, but I think it's also being able to go to places like Brazil and see how things are connected with through its architecture, understanding structures in multiple places and how they resonate and how they, they're similar but at the same time different. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's particularly being here, but it's the possibility of being in multiple places that allows for that way of thinking and that way of reflecting on the world or on resources, on materials. Those ways of connecting or trying to connect why is something here and not there, what happened that this technology allows for this place to exist the way it does, are the ways that I started thinking through the work. And also looking at places in relation to a certain kind of decay or a certain kind of prosperity of that land uh, was to understand how things moved from one place to another to make it possible. So it's, it's more or less the space in between, the gaps in between, the things that are not necessarily in front of you, but you try to make connections of places. And I think that's where the of works that's taken its place
0: That's a good transition to one of the earliest to talking about one of the earliest pieces in the show it's from 1999 The title is Sell Out 2% You Are Beautiful But You Will Always Remind Me of Violence Compressor Compressed So we'll have an image of this on on manpodcast.com but for for now the the top half of the piece includes two red eye-shaped figures and the words you are beautiful but you will always remind me of violence are written where the eyes would be where the the iris and the pupil would be this feels like a really foundational work was this kind of an early attempt to define where you
1: plan to go no actually the this piece itself is in the book to dig a hole that collapses again and it's not actually been shown in the exhibition. So in the book To Dig a Hole That Collapse Again, which is the it's a slash artist book, and a catalogue, or monograph somehow, it shows a lot of works that are not in the collection, but early drawings in a chronological order of drawings that have been made over time. So this work that you mentioned is a very early drawing and... It was a, something that I'd heard, and that I also read in certain books that were constantly looking at the other as some as people that were violent. And it was also in the a lot of times in the news that you would hear of uh, different parts of Africa that would be talking about the violence of the people, or talking about the wars, or talking about this kind of notion of there was nothing else than violence. And so it was just a a drawing that I'd made in relation to thinking about those things, and how, at the same time, the exoticism of the other, and saying, oh, you know, you people are beautiful, but at the same time, you would hear another part of the story, which is like, of Course about violence itself. So, these drawings were the early drawings that kind of talked about that reflection of two states of being or two states of being read as beautiful at the same time as violent, and how you know that kind of resonation between both. So, these were just things that were being experienced or being read about, or looked, when I looked at ethnographic researches or you know the way information had been transmitted over time. These were kind of drawings that were reflecting on that.
0: So the 99 drawing then is more about people than it is about pointing toward violence on the landscape.
1: It's more or less about the kind of informations that have been put into place and the ways that information and the ways that news, history books, all that have played a role in the way certain people are considered or thought or imagined.
0: When did you begin to bring colonialist extraction, mining and such, into the work as as such a primary subject? Was that in school? Was it after you started your professional career?
1: I, I would not necessarily say that there is a specific point in time. I would say that the the way of thinking through the work or making the work has always been that connection in relation to the body and to the space, so there are many works like for example con- the works of contain measures we're very much looking at that notion of land, looking at that notion of body, looking at the notion of um, shifting states of things, and I think it's just been a gradual process of the building up of, of thinking of the body as something that can be cut, um, that can be cleansed, that can be taken care of. And if we transpose that and think of the land at the same time, we start thinking of homes, we start thinking of places that are of remediation or, or of restoration. And I think one of the works that kind of really goes deeply into that would say I'll start saying works like Glimmer and works like In Pursuit of Blink, which is also in the show, where it kind it really expands multiple thoughts that I had or that I have in relation to body, land, spaces, minerals, material, yeah, and magic, let's say.
0: One of what of what of the the maybe not exactly magic, but magical things about the contained measures, acrylic on paper paintings, is that they build relationships between people and pieces of landscape, or between pieces of landscape and other pieces of landscape. And, and you do that through an, 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 a number of ways, but one of them is these platforms that have have something on them, and then the platforms are all kind of joined. What was the origin of, of the platforms and,
1: and that joining? The, the way of thinking of the platforms was to really come back to that place of the containment, something that is contained and something that is placed upon or something that is pierced through and so when we start thinking of that notion of containment, we can then start creating a structure that allows for something to be on. Once there is that platform, then it can float within the paper, it can float and we don't actually start thinking of that notion of something that is being restricted within a space. At the same time, we can start thinking of borders, of landscapes that have been cut out. And that cutting out for me is also a certain kind of containment, but at the same time, a certain kind of protection against or for. So we we start thinking of different kinds of mechanisms that around that notion of a certain structure, but also around politics and social decisions and politics that affect lands and contain them within a certain platform or a certain uh, structure itself. So the drawings by thinking through these kinds of processes of layers of containment, and then the drawings can sprout from there.
0: You mentioned the piercing of elements in, in your paintings. In Contain Measures, there are these kind of brown tree branch-like structures. But this idea or this painterly move of piercing runs through your work for, for years and years thereafter, whether it's rope, blue triangular lines. Why is piercing uh, such a useful metaphor
1: or move for you the, the the idea of piercing is i think the way earlier works that I, I started working on with the needle and thinking of it as a double something that has a, a certain kind of duality in which you as you're p- piercing through you're destroying and at the same time as you pull it through you're sewing and bringing it together so the early works were really looking at that kind of duality of of marking something, but at the same time, as you're marking it, you're thinking of creating a hole. But at the same time, you're it's also it's also changing that structure, that landscape that is there. The piercing has many ways of thinking, but most times I would like people to reflect on that act of actually piercing something, and what it means in relation to drilling, in relation to everything around it when you pierce there's a a kind of fracturing that takes place so we can think of fracking we can think of multiple kinds of acts that are taking place within the landscape itself and so the work should allow for that place of reflection of that point where the, the the point of a needle or pin actually hits onto another thing and what is the space in between and what does it do Um, What is the gesture that happens? What is the effect or the effects of that act within that space?
0: You know, one of the other moves that has been in your work for a number of years that I wanted to ask about was the way you use a form that seems to reference human limbs, say a forearm and an upper arm across a piece. Why is that a form and a repeated form? that you find useful?
1: The, 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 the way of thinking, I think it's the way the brain is thinking while working. When I do a lot of the drawings, I, I'm more very much interested in the act and the performativity of the body or what it's meant to do. And so if we think of a lot of classical paintings and everything, we would would imagine that the face, everything, the environment, the, the landscape, all that becomes part of the narrative. But the way I'm thinking is I'm thinking more in a performative sense in which if I'm interested in thinking through a hand that is going to swipe a surface, then why do I bother with the head, with the neck? Because I'm my main focus is the act of swiping so and since i work a lot with performance and my way of thinking is very much connected to the performative gestures of the body the way of drawing will then focus more on that gesture and so you focus directly on the act of what that person is doing and not if the person is happy sad or if the face is melancholic or whatever but it goes directly to the point and to the gestures I'm thinking and the actions that are taking place. And so the drawing is really working from that perspective and there is no other decorum around it. Everything that is meant to be there is meant to be there. The landscape or the palettes or, or the, the, just the hands or the legs or the pulling is part of the way of thinking, of the thinking process of the drawing. And that's why these happen. So it's very much reduced to what it's meant to be or my thinking process while making it.
0: You mentioned performance. And one of the things about your work that interests me is how many different media you use to conduct the explorations about which we're talking and the relationships about which we're talking. So you've made painting and drawing and installation and tapestry and performance there's a piece in the MCA Chicago show that uses scent and uh, in, in a way that connects scent to place. Are you at the point where you find any single or two media most effective, or is it the plurality of media that creates the effect you're after?
1: I think it's mainly as a thinking process and uh, while making and experimenting I fall on things that make sense that come together so if I'm trying to make a work that is I'm trying to I'm experimenting on something the failures or the the surprises kind of enter into the work also I wouldn't say that I'm I'm totally connected to one medium, but one of the main mediums that I would say the core of the starting process of thinking would be drawing. And from drawing, it explodes into wherever it wants to go and how it should go. Another part, another form is through thinking of language and, and then working with poetry, because I feel that poetry allows you to be very fluid and you can break the words and play with them and you don't have to worry about full stop punctuations, you can make mistakes in language with poetry, you can really, it's very malleable. And so these are the two places that kind of start opening up. And then the work can take place or take form with the kinds of imagination and the kinds of technologies that are also there. So I'm open to multiple ways of working and with working with different mediums. As far as they make sense when they collapse into each other and when they're put next to each other, that they're making, they're having a conversation within, they're having an opening and they're interconnecting and they're relating the multiple layers of my thoughts and experiments. And that's the way I think through the work.
0: The last thing I want to ask, I I think gets at that idea within the acrylic on paper pieces, you often but don't always include in the upper left of the paintings little swatches of color, uh, painted swatches of color. and It's kind of like an index of the color that goes into making the image of the painting. I read that as you're reminding us where the thing comes from and encouraging us always to think about where something comes from, but how do you think of it? Why did, why did, why did you begin doing that? And why do you still do it?
1: It started, I think more or less as a mistake. <laughs> when <laughs> I think the color I was using kind of dropped at the side. <laughs> and then I, I used that, I started using my brush and it was a big blob. And then I kind of started using that paint that was on the paper to start drawing. And then I, I then, for the next color that I wanted to use, then of using that surface as a palette. Um, so it came from a place of a mistake. And then gradually, I think it started making sense in relation to thinking about the work. And another thing was that it made sense to understand what the color was doing on that paper. Because once I mix color in a bowl and then I put it on the paper, the color is not the same. So it allows me to be a bit more precise about the, tonal, the tone that I want on that paper because it's directly already on it before going into the drawing itself. But at the same time, in some of the drawings, you would actually be like one of the drawings in Social Consequences. It was in Filtered Memories. No, it was Social Consequences 1. One of the titles of the palettes that I used was called segregation. And the work was really looking at the ways in which the 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 separation of bodies, places, the idea of protection and also of barring. And so it made sense to use the palette as a way of thinking of segregation, which also refers to the notion of the segregation of colors, or when we think of the color wheel. But if we have to use that term in relation to spaces and or if we think of apathy, or we think of all these different parts of the city where people are segregated in one way, it made sense to think of it in relation to that notion of race also. So it can be used as a way of thinking through this kind of social constructs, but at the same time, it comes in as a way of thinking through process in the work, that you can connect it to look, to see how things are slowly being done. It's a, it's a gap, between the finished work and the process and the starting point. And that gap allows for maybe that thinking process to take place, I hope.
0: Yeah, it's a really versatile way of closing a circle, if you will, or, or, or encouraging the viewer to close the circle. Audubon and Kenga, thanks so much.
1: No, thank you so much for the invitation and it was really great talking to you again.
0: That's all for this week's show.